there's something rather remarkable and actually inspiring about the fact that we're here and doing what we're doing each of us and all of us to engage with our life in the way that we are at the moment to sit, to stand, to walk to seek to be conscious in the midst of it all to understand the heart of it all is perhaps the most challenging endeavour we could undertake in our life and to to undertake this path we could call this path a path of awakening is a noble and beautiful thing in this world it's not so easy to make the kind of commitment that it has asked each of us to be here even if at times we have wavered in that clarity of commitment it's a demanding and challenging thing and sometimes it seems like it would be much easier for us to live unconsciously it really does sometimes seem that it would be just easier to allow ourselves to go along with all the conditioning and the habits and the patterns to live life driven by the wind and yet as the saying goes only dead fish always swim with the tide to see that for ourselves while it may be easier in any given moment to be asleep easier than to make the effort to be awake that ultimately it is much more difficult to live our lives unconsciously than to make the steady and determined application of our energy towards being awake towards being conscious and this practice that we are engaged in is a practice of awakening there is more to this life than simply filling in the gap between birth and death this perhaps we understand in fact I trust we understand this or else we couldn't really make any sense of being here and there are two aspects of that process of awakening I would like to speak about this evening two parallel elements of the path of awakening the first is to do with the breadth of human possibility the, the qualities that lie within our hearts and minds within our possibilities as a human being that we can cultivate that exist as potential within all of us as seeds that need only the right conditions in order to begin to grow to sprout to grow to flower and to bear fruit 
And these are known in the, in the Dharma teachings and the Buddhist tradition as the parami, the qualities that we can come to perfect or we can bring to full fruition within ourselves through practice that we can learn to manifest them in our life and in our world. And we are very much concerned with cultivating these qualities, these beautiful human capacities. So I'd just like to spend a little time talking about what they actually are. These are not Buddhist qualities any more than they would be the possessions of any other religion. They are qualities of human beings, qualities of the heart. And the first quality that is spoken of, and the Buddha spoke of it many times, and always this is the first that is spoken of and listed in the list of ten, is the quality of generosity, or giving, sharing, offering that which we have, or making use of that which we control, for the benefit of not just ourselves, but for others as well. And it's actually a remarkably natural impulse, I believe. I think before we become afraid in this world, afraid of not having enough for ourselves, we quite naturally wish to share what we have. And there's a way in which we respond to to wild creatures. And it's particularly clear with children, but equally with adults, how there's so much to wish to want to give them something when we see them, to offer something, perhaps to give food, or even just a kind word, or a have contact, some form of reaching out and touching. And that the capacity of generosity, it, it is a remarkable thing in this world. If any of you have ever travelled to um, poor countries in the third world, in Asia, <coughs> Africa, South America, wherever, Eastern Europe perhaps, not so different at times, one of the amazing things about people who live simply, live a peasant life, who have, it seems, remarkably little, is that in many occasions it seems they have an incredible spirit of generosity, just a willingness to give of what little they have. And it's remarkable and humbling, in fact, to be amongst such people who offer the very best food they can bring together to a a stranger who they've never met before, knowing that this is actually important to do this. And it is. There's a way in which cultivating and expressing generosity, it quite naturally begins to lessen our sense of self-centered selfishness, of looking at the world and what we have as being about me and for me. It dissolves the sense of, of lack, of not having enough. If you feel like you haven't got enough and you can still give and share of that, you'll find actually that it quite naturally brings a sense of having enough. It's quite remarkable. Sometimes we feel that we have more when we give some away of what we have. And it very much honours the truth of our interrelatedness, that what we have is not so much our own, but something that we share with all of life, just as we share this planet with all the beings that live in it. That quality of generosity is something we can cultivate, something we can develop, something we can learn to bring more into our lives. And the second of the paramis is 
the parami of harmlessness, of, of taking care not to cause harm to other beings. Sila, it's called in the Pali, which we express on the retreat through the precepts, through the resolve and intention not to cause harm as far as we can. And this is a really profound foundation for our practice the sense of taking care of all beings so that we don't harm them not just offering what we might be able to in the spirit of generosity but refraining from causing harm in, a, in an understanding that, that when we cause harm in the world it harms ourselves because we are not separate from other things and other beings and when we serve when we contribute to the well-being and the welfare of others, it actually contributes to our own well-being. It actually serves our happiness, our wholeness. And in the teachings it is understood and, and important to recognize that although all the things around us come and go, including this very life, the intentions that we form and the actions that are born of them are the true possessions that we have because they are what actually shapes our truth they shape the qualities of our heart the capacities of our heart and so cultivating intentions that serve for the well-being of others not those that cause harm is actually one of the most profoundly important things we can do for our own well-being and the fruit of our actions and our, our good actions and our good intentions is that which carries with us in life though all other things may fall behind may leave us that comes with us though we may not see it or necessarily know exactly how that is it is nonetheless so The third of the paramis is the parami of renunciation, of letting go. And here on the retreat we've been speaking of it, we've been exploring and practicing very much what it is to let go. To not seek to have too much, to live a rather simple existence as we hear, without so much possession, without so much control of our circumstance, but just with things as they are letting things be one Tibetan teacher once said that renunciation is to accept what comes into our life and release that which leaves our life and imagine what a difference it would make if we could live in that way to accept what comes to release what goes that quality of renunciation to allow things to be as they are the fourth quality, the fourth parami is wisdom we've spoken quite some about wisdom and yet again just, just bringing to mind that we can cultivate wisdom, we can discover, we can deepen in wisdom and we are in our very being here Wisdom is to see things as they are 
quite simply that, to see things as they are. It arises from being present and conscious with things as they are. And the, the feature, the defining characteristic of wisdom is it is that understanding which when we live in accordance with it is liberating, it's freeing. Because to see things as they are is to be able to live in accordance with the way things are. And this is freedom. And in the development of wisdom we see there are different aspects of it. There is the development of wisdom just about our personal lives, about who we are, about what pushes our buttons, about what our strengths are, about what our weaknesses and limitations are. Coming to see and understand that to know where our areas of vulnerability lie so that we can be extra careful to also know where our strengths and capacities are so that we can actually honour them and engage them, make use of them in the service of our life, our practice, our world to see our own remarkable uniqueness as an unfolding experience of life to understand who we are in that way, in that conventional way of our story, our history, our life. And yet it's not limited to that understanding, that kind of conventional understanding of our experience. But wisdom is equally concerned with understanding that which isn't individual, which doesn't vary for each one of us. We've all got our own story, our own strengths, our own weaknesses. But there are some elements that are universal. And wisdom is equally concerned with understanding the universal truths of life. The truth of change that we've spoken about. That all things come and go. There's nothing personal about that. If you ever thought it was happening to you, it's only because it happens to everything and everyone. And understanding the truth of change, seeing that because of that nothing can give us lasting satisfaction. This is equally one of the universal truths, that no thing, no circumstance can do it for us in an ultimate or ongoing way. Because they change, they move, they're fluid, all things are like that. Seeing that, seeing that is wisdom. When we live in accordance with that, which is letting go. Seeing also that the universal truth that things are not separate from each other. That we see ourselves somehow as being apart from life. We feel ourselves perhaps to be the owner of our experience. Despite the fact that it just comes and goes, it seems by itself, outside of our control. And wisdom, in the in that the third characteristic, this universal characteristic, is also the seeing that there isn't any owner there, that, that we are a dynamic, fluid, living process. But we are not the owner of that process, nor the subject of it. The process is life moving, flowing, expressing itself through the form of mind and body that we call who we are. And yet clearly, if we look, there's nothing in there that's permanent. There's no nugget, there's no core thing that we can point to and say, 
that's permanent, that's me. I am that. And this understanding that there isn't anything substantially separate within that which we call ourselves, nor in anything at all. That all things are interwoven. They interpenetrate, they influence each other to such a profound degree that they cannot be said to be separate in any absolute way. And that we see in wisdom that our, our practice is one perhaps of understanding that the appearance of our life is not to be denied in its appearance as though a wave moved on the water and yet to see equally that the wave is not separate from the water and we see the wave on the water there's a story about a wave travelling towards the, the shore and it saw the shore and it saw the waves in front of it going up to the shore and smashing against the shore and it started to get worse and oh no, look what's going to happen to me and it's moving towards the shore it's only going in one direction and this wave as it goes up to the shore and it breaks on the shore and it disappears and yet the wave was water all along and the water is unharmed the water is unharmed by having come to the shore. Its form has changed, but its essential nature is not. And understanding the wisdom of, of anatta, as it's called in the tradition, of, of not-self, of non-separateness, understanding that wisdom, it's like recognizing a block of ice that is dissolving in warm water. And although at one level it seems the ice is different than the water and separate from the water and it feels a lot harder and perhaps colder than the water, clearly it is not ultimately different than the water. And its dissolution is a returning to that condition, that truth. That process of understanding whereby we come to see this more and more clearly come to recognize this. This is the deepening of wisdom. And this is one of the capacities of our heart and mind that is maturing through our practice. Just as all of these paramis are. The next of these of the paramis is the parami of effort. The capacity we have to to apply ourselves, to engage ourselves and we've seen that as we do this we learn we learn how to do it in a balanced way not forcing, not striving and yet nor hanging back, kicking back relaxing without making any application of effort it's like learning wise effort to be present is our effort and to find that balance of effort that's kind of unusual for us because we're rather used to either making an effort and being really stressed and tense and very much attached to bringing about a particular result and that's what our effort is directed to as one familiar condition or the other condition is much more that we're kind of used to not caring, I don't mind, whatever but kind of relaxing back too much not really engaging and finding that quality which again we've spoken of, of a 
a quality that is both alert and yet relaxed, engaged and yet not invested. This quality of effort and energy that carries us through our life, through the challenges, through the times when it isn't easy. And we need to remember what we're doing here. And the Buddha also spoke of the four great efforts, which actually describes this process of cultivating the parami, the perfections. In the four great efforts, the Buddha spoke of giving support to the arising of that which is beneficial and wholesome, which has not yet arisen, and giving support to the sustaining of that which is beneficial and wholesome, which is not, which has already arisen. So, cultivating as we have done, loving kindness, attentiveness, letting go, sustaining that capacity. These are great efforts. And the second two great efforts are engaging with our experience in such a way that those things which are harmful, which are not wholesome or supportive, those things that have arisen that are harmful or supportive, are released, are dissolved, are let go of, are not sustained or continued. And equally learning how to understand and be with them, work with them, in such a way that those things that are the effort to not give rise to those things that are harmful or unwholesome, which haven't yet. <coughs> and not to understand this in terms of what should or shouldn't be happening, but more how we meet those things that happen. How we meet with that which is wholesome by honouring it, by recognising it. How we meet that which is not helpful, not conducive to well-being. Not by struggling with it or repressing it, by seeing that it doesn't serve us. Letting it be, not pushing it away, but nor yet giving it fuel by believing in it. The quality of patience, <coughs> the capacity to yeah. begin again, to just begin again, the sort of quality of grace that is inherent in patience, that just allows us to be with. As many times as we need to start again, we can. We don't need to rush. We don't need to get it all done right now. It is said the Buddha spent hundreds and thousands of lifetimes cultivating these qualities of heart and mind. Remarkable patience that must have involved. <laughs> Even if we don't imagine or believe in lifetimes, just the number of lifetimes we've experienced on retreat, the amount of patience it requires just to keep coming back to this kind of just this again and again and again. And a patience that just can stay steady with the challenges. That just says, okay, I can wait. Doesn't all have to happen right now. Sometimes patience is beautifully expressed in, in seeing a, a grandparent with their grandchild. And something about grandparents, not always, not all grandparents, but they have more time than those of us in sort of the busier phases of our lives. And something about that having, having gone past the busy phase of one's life and having patience. I often think it's sad that young children don't spend as much time as they perhaps once did with their grandparents or with older people elderly people because they're sort of like children have so much, they're so able to move slowly and 
They're not in a rush. And often the mature members of our community have that time and patience. There's something beautiful in us to see, we can learn from. And that is equally something we can find in ourselves. That we do cultivate being patient with others, with their faults, patient with ourselves, with our own, not trying to fix it all at once. Truthfulness, a commitment to honesty, as a as a as a primary basis of our integrity, and a a basis for seeking truth in the world, to be honest with the way things are, to to be honest and acknowledging to ourselves our weaknesses, our faults, our mistakes, our errors. We've all made them. Not to try and deny or cover that up. To see it. It's not always good news. Self knowledge. And yet to be equally honest with ourselves about our good quality, about our positive aspects and the many good things of our own lives, our good actions, our good deeds, our good qualities. To be truthful does not mean we always have to go out and tell people what the truth is. They may not always want to hear it. (laughs) But do we allow our life to honour our truth by expressing it in word, in deed, in thought. And in this way, bring ourselves closer to the deeper truth of life. And to not distort or fabricate or underplay the way things are, to get a benefit or to look a little bit better in someone else's eyes. The subtle ways where less than completely true to others or to ourselves. Sometimes it's remarkable how hard it is to be honest with ourselves about our good qualities. We get embarrassed. We feel like it's not okay. Just as important to be honest with ourselves about these. Resolve is the next of the parents. A capacity to really give ourselves wholeheartedly to, to be clear in our intention and to follow through, despite the challenges. Taking a remarkable amount of resolve for you still to be here. Really, even though you might not have felt clearly resolved, you may have got out the door, and yet you're still here. Just that sense of, in the face of all the challenges, coming back to what is most true and most important, that holds our sense of intentionality in life, that directs us, that guides us. Just as the Buddha made this profound resolve to sit under the Bodhi tree on the night of his enlightenment, and he said, you know, I'll sit here until my blood runs dry, till my bones turn to dust if need be. I'll sit here until I understand the truth. Now, we don't have to try and emulate that again. The Buddha's great for inspiration, he's bad for competition. (laughs) (laughs) And yet what he expresses is our potential. This is what the the Buddha is, is like the embodiment of human potential. That's what's remarkable about it. 
Nothing that the Buddha did was something that is outside of our capacity. Maybe not instantly able or accessible to us, but not outside of our potential. Resolve gives us a capacity to stay with our own integrity in the face of pressure. When we feel pressure from without or from within our own patterns and tendencies, clear resolve says, no, I don't want to go that way. This is what's the danger. When we see a pattern that is harmful to us, we just say, no, I don't really want to do that one this time. And we're clear. That's resolve. Equanimity. Equanimity is that capacity to just be okay with all things. To be in touch with all things. To be touched by all things. We sometimes we sometimes think of equanimity as somehow distant, or it's sort of like we hear language of um, dispassion, or somehow being safely distant from detachment, as so we're sort of apart from. And yet equanimity is perhaps more like the sun, that shines equally on all things. It doesn't choose to shine here and not there. It just shines, and all things are touched by it. One Tibetan teacher says that equanimity is to be equally near to all things. It's rather beautiful, that capacity to be equally near to all things. To not be trying to be closer to some and further away from others. This is equanimity, that condition when we're not grasping towards or pushing away. We simply are present and in touch with our life. Equanimity, that capacity, very much at the heart of, of a quality of peace and stillness. And we touch that at times in our practice. We sense that, just it's okay. Maybe just in this moment, but it's still okay. And that speaks to us of a, a profound okayness. A profound equanimity. The last of the ten perfections, the ten paramis, is loving kindness. We've spoken. We've been practicing together loving kindness. The capacity of our hearts to extend in warmth and caring towards another or towards ourselves, towards all beings. To cultivate this capacity it is of so much benefit in our lives, so much benefit to this world. And we do, not just in the conscious practice of metta meditation that we do, but just equally in the quality of the kindness and the caring and the compassion that we bring to our experience, the tenderness and the receptivity with which we bring our attention to touch life. This is kindness, this is caring. If we cultivate it, each moment we come back to that capacity, it deepens it. And this is how to understand, to understand this process of cultivation. We're not making things happen, we're not forcing ourselves to become more perfect. We're actually simply honouring the capacity that is there, in, the, in that recognition and honouring and inclining towards those capacities, they actually naturally 
I'm nourished and I grow. It is the very attention that recognizes that possibility, that nourishes that possibility, that actually brings forth from us a deepening in these qualities of heart, these beautiful capacities that are within us, that do express themselves and can become ever more deep and profound within us. With regard to this, I'd like to read a piece from His Holiness the Dalai Lama that he he said at a speech in New York in 1994. With regard to cultivating the wholesome, the beneficial qualities of heart and mind, he said, never give up. No matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy in your country is spent developing the mind, intellect, instead of the heart. Develop the heart. Be compassionate, not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate. Work for peace in your heart, in the world. Work for peace, I say again. Never give up. No matter what is happening, no matter what is going on around you. Never give up. Sometimes in our practice what it seems to us stands out much more is the opposite of all those qualities that I've just been speaking about. And it is somewhat in the nature of our practice that these things do stand out. But this is part of the process of transformation. And in fact they stand out only because of the goodness that is deepening within our hearts. If you have a really dirty piece of cloth and you spill something oily on it, it doesn't make any difference. You don't see a thing. If you have a clean cloth and a spot of oil lands on it, it's really clear and obviously dirty. And yet in fact the cloth is much cleaner than the other one. And the process whereby the difficult stands out, not to be fooled by that. It only stands out because of the profound goodness that is there. Without taking these too personally, without claiming them as mine, becoming puffed up and proud of the good qualities that are there, at the same time really honouring them when they arrive. Honouring that remarkable human capacity of goodness. These awakening human heart qualities, capacities, they bring incredible blessing to our life and to this world. And they are the first aspect of awakening, awakening the qualities of heart and mind. The second aspect of awakening is not a process of development or cultivation. It is not a process that happens in a linear, 
dimension over time. The process of awakening to freedom is not in fact a process at all. The path of awakening that was taught by Siddhartha the the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, for two and a half thousand years ago, realized something profound and liberating, sitting still and looking into his heart, just as we have been doing here over these days. He awakened, he understood a truth that was liberating. And the heart of the teaching, the heart of our practice, is to recognize that it is our potential, it is our possibility to understand this truth for ourselves. To realize the truth that is liberating, that is profoundly true and freeing. We see how much we grasp hold of in our practice. We highlight it, we focus upon it. We see how much we push away, how much we grasp onto. We hear perhaps that liberation and freedom is born of letting go. And yet, it's not that easy, is it? To just let go. It's like there's something in us that is reaching out, that always feels that somewhere else, something else is going to do it for us. If we could just get things the way we want them. And that kind of deep movement within us that is yearning, that is seeking for something. (coughs) That is born of a sense that something is actually missing. That something is actually not here. That we've lost something. And we're looking so hard to find it. A couple of, well actually it was probably about three or four years ago now, I was um, at home one evening and I was uh, washing the dishes and the phone went so I went to pick up the phone and as I was talking to my friend on the telephone I just uh, put my finger on my hand where my wedding ring is and uh, as I tend to do sometimes just to fidget and sort of play with it and as I put my finger there I felt it was missing I felt the sort of space where it normally is and there wasn't a ring there and I thought, oh no, I've lost my ring, where is it? And I called out to Catherine who was in the kitchen don't tip the water down the sink and after I finished my call I went back there to look for the ring I could feel this this sense of deep loss I mean gosh, I hope I haven't lost it and it wasn't in the dishwater and it wasn't in the sink and I looked around I was walking in the house going, where is it? Gosh, I can't find it anywhere. Catherine looked over at me and she said, you're looking on the wrong hand. (laughs) It wasn't there. It was on this one all along. And somehow, I was thinking it's missing. But it wasn't. This actually happened. And I could feel where it was missing from. I could feel that little indentation that indentation is not on the finger but I could feel it because I thought it was missing I was so sure we're a bit like that because we're convinced 
that something's missing, that something has to be found. We're looking everywhere, out there, somewhere else, something else, some other time, some other place, when I become some other person, perhaps when I've finished perfecting all those ten qualities that I just heard about, that's going to be a while, a good few years, probably a good few lifetimes. In fact, if it took the Buddha thousands of lifetimes and I'm probably going to be here for eternity. It's not quite like that. If we actually could just give up on the looking itself, on the seeking itself, on the searching itself, and actually allow ourselves to arrive where we are, to touch the very depth of this moment, of our heart, our being, our truth, just as it is, just as it is. To not look at our experience or grasp that experience as something we need or as what we are or something to do, but just as life's unfoldment. And yet, we're here. What is it to rest in the stillness of life? Life is moving, it is. Life is moving. And yet resting in the place from which we simply see it. Rather than ourselves moving through life, much more we start to sense that life is moving through us. Life is moving through the stillness that we are the stillness that is the truth of life. And that movement of life does not obscure the truth, but in fact it reveals it. Just as the clouds do not in fact obscure the sun, but in fact reveal it, because we couldn't see the clouds if it wasn't for the sun. We would never see the clouds if it wasn't for the sun. They, they reveal the sun to us, even if we can't see it. To be so deeply interested in where we are, in what is simply true in this moment, that is not defined by what is happening, by what we call our experience within us or around us, but that is neither apart from that. That is not outside of us, nor yet within us. And yet that is so close, and in fact so blindingly familiar, that we don't see it, because we're looking too hard. And when we stop looking, we actually think, we actually see. When we let go profoundly and deeply into this moment, we sense that what we are looking for is that which is looking. Is already that which it is seeking for. And in the dropping away of the seeking, realizes that this was always there. There is no sense of arriving in that recognition because there has never been any departure. As Dogen once said, none of our steps 
take it, or our actions take us further towards truth. Because in fact, none of our steps or actions have ever taken us away from it. How could it be that we leave the truth of life? No more than a fish could swim out of the water. To rest in our life as it is, speaking nothing, and yet profoundly interested, profoundly present, we may be touched by the peaceful dimension of life, which is not defined by anything, nor yet apart from all things. and in which all the unfoldment of our life is revealed. I'd like to read a piece from T.S. Eliot, The Four Quartets. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time through the unknown remembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning at the source of the longest river the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree not known because not looked for but heard half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick, now, here, now, always. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.